Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hey everybody, how are we? Good, man. My name's Charlie. If we haven't met yet, I am the senior pastor. I hang out right around here after service, except for today. So I'm going to be upstairs lunching with people who want to get to know the staff a little more. If you have that much courage, come right up. If you're just joining us every January, we roll out a new spiritual practice or spiritual discipline. And the last couple of weeks, we've talked about this idea of hospitality. Talked about why it makes a difference, what's the value of it in our world. And just so we can all be on the same page, we define spiritual discipline at Crossroads like this. They are ways that we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing our hearts. It's an intentional way of living to be formed more intentionally in the ways of Christ. And so whether it's a couple years ago, silence and solitude, feasting and fasting, Sabbath or prayer, this year we're talking about hospitality. And so before we get into it, what we say each week is this is an invitation. It's an invitation. We're not a legalistic church. God's not going to love you anymore tomorrow if you're more hospitable today. But we do believe that this is the way that Jesus lived. And by being intentional about our hospitality with the world around us, we look more like Jesus and the world sees more of Jesus. And so today we're going to be at the third table of hospitality and talk about the idea of provision. And it's just an invitation for us to think differently about how we interact with the world around us, because that's what God calls us to do. But before we dive into our text, uh, if you're new to CBC or if you're not, every single week we get together and we acknowledge this space is different than the world around us. We live in an overly critical culture because we're both prideful and insecure at the same time, and we take it out on those around us. And in this space, right here, right now, we believe God is at work, and that he's forming and shaping us because we're going to open his word together. We have a phrase that we say each Sunday, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. So for the next 25 to 30 minutes, my prayer for you and for me is that we acknowledge where the spirit is working in your spirit. We're going to start just by praying, resetting our perspectives around that. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask you to pray for you and you to pray for me as we dive into scripture together. Join me. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here, that we can acknowledge this is some place of value, that we can acknowledge that you're worthy of worship, that we can acknowledge that this is the place where our lives center around, not the other way around. So Holy Spirit, in this moment, speak to us as we open your text. Help us to think differently about how we relate to others so that people might think differently about God. If you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and say a prayer to yourself and just invite the Holy Spirit to work in your spirit this morning. Let's say you pray for me that as we look into Luke 22 today, that I might do an adequate job showing us the goodness of God at this final table of communion that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. 
pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Just to catch us up, since this is our last week, we have invited you to see hospitality through three different tables. And two weeks ago was the table of invitation. And where we get these from is kind of looking at our world and saying, I believe hospitality is an act, is a service, is a discipline, is a practice that as the church will do the most good so that people see the most goodness in God where we're at right here and right now. And so the first table was the table of invitation. We looked at Zacchaeus and we said, in a hostile world, the practice of hospitality is vitally important. And we define hospitality like Henry now and then as a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them a space where they might change and change can take place because the spirit's at work. In a hostile world, we need the heart of the gospel that reaches out to people, all people. I love what Pete actually a couple months ago gave a sermon. He had a really great phrase when he talked through Romans 12, which is about hospitality. He said, hospitality is for those that don't sit, think like us, that don't look like us, that don't vote like us, those that might not even like us. It's the heart of God. Because before God counted you a child of God, he counted you an enemy of God, and he came after you anyway. Hospitality starts when we invite people into a journey with God together. And then the second week, we looked at the table of the ordinary, and we said that in a world that really just values the goodness of things by how exciting it is and high water moments and viewers and counts and insta-famousness that maybe, maybe God does more in the everyday than we give him credit for. That God does more with our houses on a Tuesday than we think is possible. That maybe that's where we see the most goodness of God in our day-to-day. That hospitality reminds us that our houses should be the holy epicenter for God's activity in the world. And so we looked at like the mission of Jesus around the meals of Jesus. He did a lot around dinner, you know? And what if we did the same? And we said that when we're people of hospitality, we use everyday spaces as a microphone for God's graces to the world around us. Lunch and dinner and Chick-fil-A and everything in between. The table of the ordinary that Jesus worked at so often. And today we move on to one more table. Today we invite you to the table of provision. So our world is hostile and our world is high water moments. It's the only sign of good. And then I think too, or thirdly, man, I think our world is just a worried place to be. I do. I think we have too much access to news today. And so we are afraid that around the corner something disastrous is going to happen. Every time my wife and kids leave, I have to fight. I have to fight thoughts in my head to believe that something terrible is not going to happen to them. We're a worried people. I'm a worried person. I saw that Microsoft is laying off people and Apple's laying off people, and I wonder what the next year is going to bring. I wonder if there's going to be a recession or not a recession. I get on Zillow once a week to see what's happening with the value of my house. I'm not going anywhere, you know? This is what we do. We're worried people. You look at any study that, that, that kind of takes uh, stock in the psyche of Americans and anxieties up, depressions up, pills are up to meet these different challenges that we have. I think we are a worried people. One author I read said, fear is like underwear. Everybody's putting it on every day and keeping it politely covered up. The problem is, I don't know if we're keeping it politely covered up anymore. I love what John Stott, theologian, says about worry. He says, all worry is about tomorrow whether about food or clothing or anything else, but all worry is experienced today. So, so I think when we talk about how we relate to people around us, follower of Jesus or not, we have to deal in this world of worry that we live in. And today we deal in that worry with the table of provision. I think it's amazingly powerful, the provision of Jesus. I think it meets us right where we're at. 
And I think it's what we need to remember in a worried world. And so our text today is in Luke chapter 22. This is again around a meal. And in Luke chapter 22, he's setting up the final meal he had in the upper room with his disciples. And just so you know, they're probably a little worried too. He's talking about the last days. His disciples don't know what that means. In verse 15 of Luke 22, he says this to his disciples. He says, when he joined them, he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That is not the God they signed up to follow. They're probably thinking, suffer, what are you talking about? This is our victory lap. I think the disciples had some concerns about what was going to happen next. And it's at this table of worry that Jesus meets him. That he's hospitable. That he says, look at me and let me define what good is. I love what N.T. Wright said about this moment. He said, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples his forthcoming death and what it was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at this meal. I want to look at the nuances of this meal. It's actually five different phrases we see describe this meal in the New Testament, and we're going to make reference to each of those and how it sheds light on the communion meal that we experience together before we take it. And I want us to really look at what it means that God provided, what it means when he says that I'm enough, what it means when he says, do this in remembrance of me. Let me read our text before we get in. I'm going to start in verse 14. It says, when the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles joined him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he'd eaten, and he said, this is the cup that's poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. So he sets up this meal, and and the phrase that kind of runs throughout, the phrase that that we continue now is a simple phrase, do this in remembrance of me. That's why we do it. That's why we're going to take communion today. That's why at Crossroads we take communion is because Jesus said, keep doing this thing that I did one time with my disciples because it's good for you. And the question today I have is why is it good for us? And, And what we have to understand is in the first century world, in the language Jesus spoke, that word remember is different than probably the baggage we bring into it. When I say remember, what we typically hear and mean is think about. When they hear remember, what they heard was, especially in this context, on this night, when they talked about the Passover, was not just remember, but relive. It's a way that we remember what Christ did that shapes our today and our tomorrow. Let me give you an example. There's a difference between, I remember my, my, my daughter's first birthday three years ago. I remember it. It was a good time. She had cake for the first time. Bad couple hours after that, but she loved it. We remember her birthday. Do you know where we relive? So to this day, we'll start a fire every other night or so in my fireplace. And my daughter, every time I start a fire, will get terrified of the flames. Do you know why? I'm a horrible father, that's why. On our first birthday, we lit this little candle on top of this little cake. And my in-laws were there and my parents were there. And they said, Charlie, be careful that the candle is close to where she can reach it. And I said, I'm faster than a one-year-old. You know what I wasn't? Faster than a, they're quick little buggers, you know that? So my one-year-old daughter reached out and grabbed the flame. Um, I was 
dude, she, she cried like I hadn't heard. She realized right then and right there, fire hurts, you know? And uh, I had to eat some crow there and say, I'm sorry. And said, I mean, I realized that fire hurts. So you think that would be enough. Fast forward to her second birthday. <laughs> her second birthday, we got a sparkler with a number two on it. And we were like, hey, we're not going to touch the fire. And she's like, no fire. We're not going to touch the fire. We lit it and it burned and it burned and it burned and it burned. And then it got done. And what we didn't say was fire remains hot after it's burned out. And so when the two got done burning, you know what she did? She grabbed the two, man. And so now by the time our third birthday came around, there there's no candles, <laughs> you know? My point is simply, we relive her birthdays. Uh, we, we remember her birthday. She relives the fire. So when I light a fire, it shapes who she was. It shapes who she is now. It shapes what she's going to do next. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's more than just, hey, tell the story of Exodus and, 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 and remember that time that you learned it in Sunday school the first time. When he says, remember, what he means is let the stories of the Old Testament shape who you're becoming right here and right now. And that's exactly what happens. And so in the first century world, this was a Passover meal. And so it's everything to do with Israel's, the disciples shared past together. They called it the Passover because if you don't know, it's when they got together once a year and they told the story of how God delivered them from the Exodus. The worst time in their people's history. They got together and they told the story and they relived God delivering them from slavery. There's something that the um, man of the house did every time he got together on the Passover in the Jewish community. It's called the Haggadah. Uh, and what that was, was you practiced for about six weeks at the beginning of this meal. You got up and in your own words, you recited the Exodus. In your own words, you said, this is the story of our people. And the purpose of that was that you would internalize it and make it your own and not just remember, but absolutely relive God's, God's, God's rescue from oppression. And so when they gather together in the upper room and he says, do this in remembrance of me, the idea was they wouldn't just recall the first time they heard the story, but in their current oppression under the Roman government, they might begin to believe again that God might begin to rescue and redeem again. And, and here's the, the crux of it is that we are a people that so easily forgets. And so one phrase that we have for this meal is the Passover. And Luke's favorite way to describe it in both his narrative in the gospel and in Acts is the breaking of bread. And when we talk about the breaking of bread, it's really that moment when they had a meal together and they remembered what it was like to actually be rescued. John Mark Hicks in his book, Come to the Table, Re-Envisioning the Lord's Supper says, breaking bread then was not a solemn funeral, but a celebration by the new community. The disciples ate with joy and generosity as they praised God for his redemptive work. They ate with hope as they remembered and re-experienced re the victory of Jesus over death through eating together. Here's the problem, though, and this is why this is very, very important, is because we want to remember that God provided, but we're a people that just so easily forgets. You know that? We live in one of the most coveted places to live, not just in the states, in the world. And we still question if God will provide or has provided. We have short memories. That's the story of the Old Testament too. The people had short memories. So there's all these altars of stones all around Israel when you'd walk by with your kids and they'd say, what are those stones? And as a father, you'd say, that was when God delivered us from this battle and this battle and this battle. Because we have short memories. I have a one-year-old son 
And every morning he wakes up. And do you know how he wakes up? He wakes up angry. Like he's just mad. He just goes from I'm asleep to I'm awake and I'm yelling. Do you know why he's yelling? He's really hungry in the mornings. He's a little chunkster and he doesn't eat good dinners. And so he wakes up at 6 a.m. and he's angry he's awake and he's angrier that he's hungry. And in that moment, he seemingly forgets that I gave him all the goldfish and flower mound yesterday and I'll do it again today. It's that idea that I've never let that kid go hungry. I've never let him even experience a slight kick beyond like I'm a little, you know, need a little sustenance. He eats more food in a day than I eat in a day. But every morning he wakes up and he forgets that yesterday I got fed and he acts like he's never going to get fed again and he's mad at me for it, you know? I walk in his room, he's got two tears. He does that cry thing where the tears like stay on his cheeks for hours. It's so adorable the first time you see it. Um... And, and he just looks up at me like, why are you hurting me? I'm like, I'm not hurting you. You know, I want to say, eat dinner then. You know, he doesn't talk yet. So it's this idea that we so easily forget. One of my favorite uh, things to think about is in the Old Testament, since we're talking about the Passover, the name of God kind of goes into the Passover narrative. There's a proper name for God in the Old Testament given to Moses in Exodus 2. Moses says, God, I don't think I'm the one to go deliver my people when the bush is on fire, but not being consumed. You probably know the story. And and God says, yes, I am. And, and, and Moses says, what am I going to say to your people when I show up? What? And he says, you're going to tell them that, that, that I sent them to you. And the word he uses there is the proper name for God. It's Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's used over 6,000 times through the rest of the Old Testament. And some scholars talk about how that word in and of itself mimics breath, how it's spelled. Yod. Ha, vad, ha. And, and, and what happens is when you say the word, what I love about how they say it is that literally the first thing a baby does when they're born is they acknowledge their dependence on God. And the last thing we do when we die is acknowledge our dependence on God through breath. I think that God even wove into our day-to-day how we're fully dependent on a God who provides for us, but we forget. And so when Jesus gathers his people together, it says, I'm going to reimagine Passover for you He's recalling how they've been uh, rescued in the Old Testament. He's asking them to believe it again. This beautiful truth that in a world that worries so easily and often forgets that the provision of God today helps us recall how he provided yesterday. Hospitality is about showing people that God was there with them yesterday because he is right here, right now in this meal. And the second, you know, when you keep reading about communion, you come up with this common term. Um, it's found in 1 Corinthians 10. It's how we get the name communion. It comes from the word koinonia, fellowship in the Greek. It says this in verse 16 in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. It's not the cup of blessing that we, uh, that we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread who are many in one body and we all share one bread together. The idea of communion, the word that we use, literally means that it brings us in fellowship with God together. So in the past, we we saw that God had provided for us and in the present, what he's saying is I'm literally providing for you right now. And why that was needed in 1 Corinthians 11 was because they were not being good Christ followers. If you read the context of that whole chapter, Basically, you had these rich Corinthians that didn't go to work every day because they weren't day laborers, and they would show up to their community meal early and eat all the food and drink all the wine and get drunk. And then when the poor people showed up, they'd have no food and they'd have no wine. And Paul said, that is not how we do things in the kingdom because we all need the same amount of God's provision. 
So there's no fellowship if there's different tiers in our society. There's no fellowship if you that don't work has a different experience of Jesus that you then do. There's no fellowship because you have treated others differently and God doesn't treat people differently based on fill in the blank there. How much you owe, how much you make, what color you are, what gender you are. God doesn't see different. Jesus died for you just the same. And so there's this idea in the present that what the provision of God does at the table with the disciples, at our table today, is it reminds us of the uniformity in Christ, that we all need the same amount of Jesus. The provision of God is for all people all the time. We're so easily a people that forget that too. If you continue on in the language of how we define this, uh, this practice together, in our text it says he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And probably the most common word for communion outside of our expression of it in the evangelical church is the Eucharist. Most Catholics would call it that. It just means give thanks. It comes from literally this phrase in Luke that says after he broke the bread, he gave thanks. After he took it, he gave thanks. And, and when we talk about what that does for us as we come together at the table. It reminds us that the provision of God wasn't just for yesterday, but it's for right here, right now. So back in the first century, when you broke bread, you didn't get a nice serrated knife that did the work for you. You had to actually do it with your hands. It was messy. There were crumbs everywhere. It was more visceral. We have distanced ourselves from the breaking of bread. We've distanced ourselves from the suffering of others so that we might not have to. We've distanced ourselves from the interdependence we have on one another and on Jesus. And we've replaced it with a culture that I've done enough, I can do enough, look what I've done on my own. I think what the table does is remind us that everything is grace. Everything. I can't go a day without being reminded that I need Jesus. So when we break bread, it's just a gentle reminder that, that, that food in and of itself is a reminder of our sacrifice and our dependence on things outside of our body to keep living. But it points up towards Jesus as being what we need everything, uh, what we need to provide everything that we had because everything is a grace. It shows us what we need because in the middle of our anxieties, we forget that Jesus is provided enough right here and right now. Even in the Luke narrative in verse 21, it goes on. You see kind of how his disciples change it a little bit. It says, but look, Jesus says, the hand of the one who betrays me is on the table for the son of man is to go just as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. So they began to question one another as to which one of them it could possibly be. And you'd think that would dominate the table conversation from then on out, right? You'd think they'd say, whoa, somebody's going to betray my rabbi, my savior, my Lord. Let's find out who it is right now. They have a small side conversation about the fact that somebody's going to betray Jesus because he said he's going to suffer. And then in verse 24, this happens. A dispute also started to mug them over which one of them was the greatest. <laughs> they very quickly moved from somebody else's problem to my problem. They very quickly remembered again their worry in the middle of this meal and forgot that Jesus had provided for them. Here's what provision does in the middle of our present. It resets our perspective. It moves our anxiousness towards graciousness. So when, when we come to this table, we're reminded that God not only had provided for us in the past, but he's presently providing for us. And when we focus on what God has given us, it's hard for us to worry about what we don't have. Studies 
all over the place have finally caught on to God's good way of living and they've said that a life of graciousness and gratefulness will make you happier and healthier and more whole. That's the way of Jesus. By reminding ourselves of what God has given us, we're not caught in this captive fear of what we don't have or what could happen. By reminding ourselves of God's provision in the present, we don't woefully worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Present provision, it reminds us and it moves our anxiousness to graciousness. So there's this idea that when he says, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying, remember where I brought you from and remember that right here, right now, I've provided for you and let that graciousness, because my body got broken for your good, might that graciousness move your anxieties towards gratefulness. So he gathers his people around this meal and he says, it, it, it redefines your past, this hospitality I'm giving, this provision I'm giving. It gives you confidence right here and right now that I'm enough. When the world around us is telling us that we don't have enough or we aren't enough or we won't have enough. And then finally, the way this is talked about in Jude 12 actually talks about this different side of the feast that it's not just about the table that redefined the past that we remember and relive and expect, not just about how the present gets defined through the current blessings of God that move us from anxiousness to gratitude. But finally, do you know when they gathered together? There's another phrase for the table, for the communion, for the Eucharist, for the Lord's Supper, for uh, the breaking of bread. It's called the agape, the love feast in the New Testament. It's used in one verse. Do you know why they called it that? Because Christians got together and man, they partied when they had a meal together. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11, they're getting drunk. They didn't just come together and so sorrowfully and somberly approach the table. We do that now, and I think one of the ways we need to re-envision communion is to be a little more joyful when we remember what Jesus did for us. It's a beautiful depiction, not just about our sin and brokenness, but about what he's going to do to fix that ongoing and long-term. Because the table that we take together isn't just a story about what God did do and what God is doing now. It's a complete narrative about what he's still going to do. That's why Jesus says in Luke twenty-two eighteen, I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What the provision of God does is not just remind us of how he's provided for us, not just re- define our worried and anxiousness into gratefulness in the present, but as we look towards the future, what provision does is remind us that God's not done yet in a world that's scared of tomorrow. I love what Philip Yancey says about celebrating at the table. He says, this table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the tables, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold up our little cups high and toast to lost sinners founds and dead brothers and sisters alive. The nature of communion is celebratory because in the, in the provision of God, we recognize and realize it's not just past, it's not just present, but he's not done yet. And the New Testament's full of that. Read Revelation 19 when he talks about the supper of the Lamb to come. He starts reminding us that God's good is fully bursting into our present and it's continuing on in the work. It's the heart of the message of the New Testament. It's the heart of the message of Pauline literature. It's the heart of the message of Jesus that I am kicking off my kingdom now, but I am not done yet. Believe it. And so when we talk about the provision of God, it reminds us that God's not done working yet. There's this beautiful passage in Isaiah 25. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people. 
a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and finest wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the street that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. All hospitality is the convergence at this table. A provision is the convergence of our past brokenness and our present pain and our future hope. The table of provision is God's promise that he is not done yet. I love what Max Lucado says about fear and worry. He says, as its center, it's a, it's a loss of control. And so if we're going to define hospitality as invitation and letting people in in week one, and in week two, if we're going to define it as a radical ordinary that lets an extraordinary God use our ordinary so that people might see his goodness, I think we round this out at the table of provision by saying hospitality is when we get to pass on the provision of God to a worried world. That's what we do. At a meal at Cracker Barrel after that, we pass on the provision of God to a world. world. We, we say to them, what if God wasn't done yet? And what if this moment was a foreshadowing of that moment? N.T. Wright says it like this. The present moment holds together the past and the great future. When God's world will be remade under Jesus' loving rule, past and future come rushing together into this present, pouring an ocean of meaning into this little bottle of now. Hospitality isn't just about being nice to people and it's not just about meals and it's not just about inviting others in and it's not just about God using our houses on Tuesday. Those are all good things. Ultimately, what hospitality does is show people that God loves them and that he's continuing to work for their good. Ultimately, what hospitality does in a broken world is remind people that, God, that God's not done working yet. It reminds people that his promises are still good and that's why our world needs the practice of hospitality now more than ever. It's when we pass on the provision of God because through the provision today we can trust his promises tomorrow. When we talk about the table of provision, it catches all of us where we've been, where we are, and hopefully what we're looking forward to in the future. It's a beautiful way that we say God is enough. And Jesus said it just by saying, do this in remembrance of me, that I have, that I am, and that I will provide for you. So the question we have going out this morning is simply how are you passing on the provision of God to those around you? From your neighbors in your, on your street to your friends in your small groups to the people at your work to people that you might not know so well, how are you showing them in little ways that God is providing for them? That's why last summer and this summer at CBC we do service projects. We make bike for, bikes for orphan kids. We feed homeless people. We do whatever we can to show them that through provision today, they can have hope in what God is doing tomorrow. I was talking to someone this morning about a meal train for somebody who just had a baby. They don't have a whole lot of help, and so let's make them casseroles. I hate casseroles, but let's make some casseroles because God is good, you know? It's this beautiful idea that, that what we have paints a picture for what we will have. It's so much more than just the here and now. That's the power of the table of of, of what God is inviting us into, a provision. And so let me, let me give you a way this is gonna look at CBC in the coming months. Uh, we're gonna kick off, you'll get it in your e-news if you don't have our email, sign up. But um, we're gonna have these things called service hosts that we're gonna create. And what that means is we're gonna provide for people that show up. And so if you wanna be one, all you have to do is email us when we send out the link. But it's just the people that normally show up are just gonna 
pledge to uh, provide for people that sit in their little section. You know, most people sit in the same part of church all the time. Do you guys know that? I know that because I've moved the chairs around and people get angry. My one-year-old son is nice compared to these people when I move their chairs. Literally about 10 years ago, I moved chairs. We kicked off a whole section over here. And I had somebody, dear, dear friend of mine, still goes here, probably not in the room, otherwise I wouldn't share the story, grabbed a chair and put it over here in the middle of nowhere because that's where she sat, everybody, you know? So all we're going to do is we're going to charge people that sit in the same places to be hosts in their section. And you're four or five rows around you. Look for who's new. Look for who's hurting. Look for who we need to help and pass that on and help yourself so that we can show people through handshakes in the minute and a half we do a greeting every Sunday that God has provided for them. It's a way that we can continue on this ministry of provision because God says it's so incredibly powerful. So the question is, how are you providing for others so that people can hope in God's provision for them and see it in the past, recognize it in the, pre- in the present, and then bank on it in the future? That's hospitality. It's the power of it. You know, what's interesting is that um, oftentimes we have meals and we don't think that it's anything more than that. And I got the, <laughs> I got the privilege of spending New Year's Eve with some dear friends When I moved down here after grad school, I lived with some dudes for a little while, and I hadn't really lived in a Christian home before, just with my friends that weren't Christians, and there were different things that happened. And we lived in a house in Louisville for on and off three years, before we had girlfriends, and before we had wives, and before we thought it was a good idea to have kids and no time and money. And we became really close, and now our families are really close. And we got together at New Year's Eve. We rented a house somewhere in Oklahoma that my daughter thinks is in California, and so she keeps asking to move to California. <laughs> Geography starts at five years old, all right? And we got together, and it was really beautiful because New Year's Eve, we, we put the kids down to bed, and then we ate a meal together afterwards at like 9.45. And we gathered around the table, and we remembered this beautiful friendship that we have, that God has been good to us. And we told stories about what it was like when we first started dating, and how we've changed since we've been married. And then we told stories about what it was like when we first started having kids. And then we lived all weekend long what it's like with kids. And then we reminded each other, I mean, we got years and years of this because we're not going anywhere and God is good. It was this beautiful meal. And before we ate, uh, there's this book that um, called Every Moment Holy. It's a bunch of liturgies. And we went around the table and we read this liturgy. And if you come to my house for dinner, I'm gonna make you read it too. It's one of my favorite things. And so we went around the table and each took a section and we read this to one another. It says, In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship, the welcome and comfort of friends old and new, and the celebration of those blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal. They're the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come that will be unending. So let this, our feast this day, be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. Bless, O Lord, this feast. Bless us, O Lord, as we linger over our cups and over this table laden with good things, as we relish the delights of varied texture and flavor and aroma and spices of dishes prepared of acts of love and blessing of sweet delights made sweeter by the communion of saints. May the shared meal and our pleasure in it bear witness against the artifice and deceptions of the prince of darkness that would blind this world of hope. May it strike at the root of the lie that would drain life of meaning in the world of joy and suffering of redemption. 
May this our feast fall like a great hammer blow against the brittle night, shattering the gloom, reawakening our hearts, stirring our imaginations, focusing our vision on the kingdom of heaven that is to come, on the kingdom that is promised, on the kingdom that is already indeed among us. For the resurrection of all good things has already joyfully begun. That is what we declare when we take communion together. That is what we declare when we're hospitable to one another. That God has delivered, he is delivering, and he will deliver. That is the table of provision. So as we take communion together, may we celebrate in God's kingdom here and that is to come. And may it shape how we see, how we interact with others. That we give them the same confidence that we have in a God who will provide. Join us at the table.